so we're, in, um, we're resuming our series today. We're in week six. It'll be a nine-week series, but we're in week six of a series called Belief in the Age of Skepticism. The stated goal of this series, um, I try to re- uh, remember to say on the front end of each week, is uh, just to communicate the truth of Christianity in a way that builds your faith. And um, we've been going through core beliefs of Christianity, and, and today we're going to talk about salvation, which I don't know how you talk about that without feeling a little bit happier. That's why I say this one really should be just an inflating uh, message. Before we get to it, though, I just want to set the tone for our time together. When I was in uh, quarantine, I was listening to a lecture on Christianity given at Hong Kong University a number of years ago, and the presenter said something that really stuck with me. As soon as I heard it, I paused, and I ran over my laptop, and I, and I uh, typed it out because I wanted to share it with you all. He said, and I quote, I don't think most people today are motivated to dig into the evidence for Christianity unless they see that if it was true, it would really make a difference for them. I agree with that. Um, There is certainly a time and a place for, you know, providing arguments for the uh, historicity of the resurrection and why the gospel accounts can be seen as, as you know, valid historical documents. And actually, if you've been here for the first five weeks of this series, you know I've offered all kinds of um, arguments and thoughts about that. But ultimately, in order for faith to come home, uh, it has to be more than just an intellectual thing because we're more than just intellectual beings. For, for faith to really um, enter into your life and transform you in a holistic way. It has to do more than just uh, impact the mind. It has to hit the heart. And um, what I mean by that is that, you know, you and I really have to be brought to a place where it dawns on us that what Jesus stands ready to give and what Christianity as a belief system offers is... um, it's just so, so amazing to us, it's so beautiful to us, it's so captivating to us that we find ourselves, even if we're not ready to necessarily believe it all the way, we catch ourselves just desiring that it was true. And so to set the tone today, my, my goal is not, um, th- this isn't going to be a, an apologetic message in the normal sense of the word or maybe the way that, that we tend to think of it when we hear that word. What I mean is that I'm, I'm not going to be up here trying to offer you a purely intellectual and rational argument for the doctrine of salvation for two reasons. Number one, I wouldn't even know how to do that. But number two, if I could figure that out, I really don't think that would do this doctrine justice. So my my goal today, just to set expectations, is to uh, show you what the Bible's talking about when it talks about this thing called salvation and then step out of its way in the hope uh, that you'll be captivated by it. And, and so one more time, my hope is that really wherever you're coming from, uh, as you, you, you dial into this, wherever you're at, you know, Christian or somewhere outside of Christianity or, or everything in between, um, my, my hope is that by the end of this time together, you will find the Christian concept of salvation beautiful. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. I'll go ahead and read that on the front end. It says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. 
we have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. This is God's word. So this, if, if you read this in the original Greek, this uh, passage is actually one long sentence. Uh, it, it's like when, when Paul sat down to write, to write the letter to the Ephesians, uh, he just got really carried away with himself, basically. He kept thinking about all of these amazing things that he had uh, you know, to say, and he just couldn't bring himself to put a period at the end of the sentence. Um, as far as, um, if you're looking for a summary of Christian salvation, I, I think it's this sentence right here is the undisputed heavyweight champion for the greatest single sentence in the Bible that summarizes all that the Bible's talking about when it talks about this thing called salvation. And if you noticed, it actually doesn't even use the word salvation in this passage. Uh, it uses a phrase instead on the front end here in, in verse 3, uh, every spiritual blessing. It says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then in the rest of the passage, it just sort of walks out what all of those blessings are. And that's what salvation is. It is this, multi, it's this multidimensional, multifaceted, all-inclusive assortment of spiritual blessings. Um, which in and of itself I think is important to hang on to. Because a lot of times when we talk about salvation, we talk about it almost exclusively in terms of forgiveness for my sin. And that's an amazing thing. And that is certainly what salvation entails. It's definitely not less than that. I'm just happy to tell you um, that it's actually a whole lot more than that. And this, um, this assortment of blessings, according to this passage, it's actually something that you get the entirety of the very moment that you give your life to Jesus. So it's not like a relationship with Jesus gets you in the door and then you know, the, the, the smartest or the hardest working or the most moral Christians get you know, to the double platinum diamond tier Christian kind of thing. You, you get this entire assortment of blessings the moment you give your life to Jesus. That's why Paul says that God has blessed us, past tense. So maybe you're thinking, all right then, why are we talking about this? Uh, it dawned on me while I was putting this together that no one studies a treasure map to locate something that's already in their possession. Uh, so why then would we spend time on a Sunday morning in, in, in one of the weeks in this series talking about something that we already have? To answer that question, I would like to tell you the true story of a man named Louis Delcour, which I have not used in a while. Louis Delcour was a French soldier in the First World War who overstayed his leave, meaning he went AWOL, and to avoid disgrace, he decided he was going to desert altogether. And so he ran home to his mom's house and asked her to hide him in her attic, which because uh, she was his mother, she did. And so she uh, fed Louis and she hid Louis in her attic, and she did so for 21 years years. Yeah. Uh, so in August of 1937, Louis's mom died, and he knew that um, it was no good starving to death in the attic of her home, and so he left the house. And you can imagine what he looked like, you know, this kind of pale, haggard, you know, shell of a person, left the house, and he decided he wasn't going to play games. He was just going to find the first police officer he could and turn himself in, which he did. So he found a police officer. This is a true story, by the way. He said, uh, he said, my name's Louis Delcour. I deserted from the war, and I'm here to face the penalty for my crime. And the, the police officer looked at him, you know, absolutely awestruck. 
And he said, son, where have you been that you haven't heard? And Louis said, heard what? And he said, a law of amnesty for deserters was passed years ago. Not only are you a free man, but you have been a free man for years. And with that, he, he walked away. And I love that story. <clears throat> I read that story, and it was the final chapter of, a, of um, the final book that a man named John Stott, who was, who was a pastor and theologian, uh, he included that in the final uh, um, chapter of his, of his book. But I, I love that story because in that you have, you have a character, Louis Delcour, uh, who had something. He had his freedom, but his life was not changed by his freedom. Not because he didn't have it, but because he didn't realize what he had. And biblically speaking, it is entirely possible for you to go through your entire life like that. In fact, I think most Christians go through most of their life like that. Not only... Uh, do none of us want to live that way, but I'm pleased to announce, more importantly, that God does not want us to live that way either. And this passage was written, among other things, uh, to keep us from living that way by reminding us what we have in Jesus, this multifaceted assortment of blessings that the Bible refers to as salvation. And so today, during our time together, uh, I, I really just want to focus on uh, three things. I want to talk about, first, how you get every spiritual blessing. I want to talk about what those blessings are. And then lastly, uh, how to know whether or not you have them. So the first question I want to answer um, during our time together is how you get these blessings. The answer is found right in the first verse of this passage, and Paul finds a way to work it into almost every verse in this passage uh, because he wanted to be real clear how this is possible. And the answer, according to this text and according to the rest of Scripture, is that these blessings come in Him, in Jesus. Meaning, if you are united to Jesus, you have every single spiritual blessing. The opposite of that is also true. If you are not united to Jesus, you do not have any of them. So that raises the question then, what does it mean to be united with Jesus? And the, the, the best metaphor that we have for this, that we actually borrow from Scripture, it's frequently found in Scripture to, to, to explain this to us, uh, is that of um, marriage. Because when you're married to someone, you're united to them, on the one hand, in a legal sense, in the eyes of the law, but you're also united to them uh, in, a, in a deeply personal, uh, life-giving, life-changing, relational way. Uh, and so let me just kind of walk through both of those aspects. First off, uh, l- legally. Let's say that, you know, thought experiment here. Uh, two people are, are considering marriage. One of them is extremely poor. The other one is, is extremely rich. The way that it worked in Paul's day and the way that it has worked in most cultures throughout human history uh, is that when a, a very rich person marries a very poor person, that very poor person is no longer poor. Because in that moment, as soon as they say, I do at the altar, or however that cu- culture celebrates marriage, Uh, Regardless of the life that you lived before marrying this person, even though you have earned not a penny of their riches and you had no right to it in and of your own merit, the moment that you're joined in marriage, you share that wealth. And what the Bible reminds us of over and over again is that that's exactly what happens to you the moment you give your life to Jesus. That regardless of, of how spiritually impoverished you were before Jesus, the moment that you're united to him, his riches become yours. This is exactly what Paul was getting across in uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 5 when he said, you've probably heard this before, he said that we are united with Jesus not only in his death but also in his resurrection. 
Uh, and I, I wonder if you've ever really thought about what that means to be reunited. You know, Paul says a similar thing in Galatians, that I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. He's saying we're united with Jesus both in his death and in his resurrection. So I just I want to walk through both aspects of that real quickly. First off, uh, Jesus' death. Um, Jesus died, obviously, not just as a display of sacrificial love to be an example for us, um, but uh, to be a substitute for us. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, to satisfy the requirements of the law. Uh, in, in human terms, we understand this. Every law invented by humans carries with it a penalty that must be paid if you decide to break that law. But the way the justice system works, if it's a just justice system, is the moment that you pay the penalty for that crime that violated that law, the moment that you pay that penalty that law no longer has any claim on your life. And so what that means, uh, to be united with Jesus in his death, what that means is that you are as free. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this before, but when Scripture says that you are united with Jesus in his death, what it's saying is that you personally are as free from the guilt and the condemnation of your sin as though you have died for it personally. That's why Paul could go on to say in Romans 8.1 that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never demand two payments for the same crime, and so therefore you are completely free from the demands of the law in Christ. That's pretty good news. What Paul says, however, is not only that we are united with Jesus in his death when we give our lives to him, but, but the other side of that coin is that we're united with him in his resurrection. Now, Jesus' resurrection, you know, one of the main reasons that people, at least at Calvary, had so much trouble believing that Jesus was God, Paul, the apostle, before his conversion, fell into this camp, is because any Jewish person in that day knew that, that uh, you know, anyone who, who, who hung on a tree or, or who died by crucifixion was cursed. It was, it was thought if you, were, if you were put to death in that way that you had to be dying for your own sin because how could God let something so horrible happen to you? And so when people saw Jesus hanging on the cross, that was a crisis of faith even for those who believed before the crucifixion because they thought, this is not how this thing should play out. Well, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that resurrection was a vindication. It proved that Jesus did not die for his own sins. And so his resurrection was basically his triumph. It was, it was his victory. And so what that means when Scripture says that you have been united with Jesus in his resurrection, it means that all that Jesus deserves for the life that he lived, all that Jesus earned by his own merit becomes yours the moment that you give your life to him. This is the aspect of salvation I think we do not spend, at least I can, I can speak personally here and maybe th this speaks for you as well, I don't think we spend nearly enough time thinking or talking about this aspect of, of our salvation. Because, and listen, listen for it one time, so often when people talk about salvation, they talk about it strictly in the negative sense, strictly in terms of what God's taken away. He's taken away my guilt, he's taken away my shame, he's taken away, you know, my past, he's separated it as far as the east is from the west, he's wiped my slate clean, I'm whiter than snow, all that kind of stuff. All of that's true and all of that's amazing, but all of that is exactly 50% of what happens to you the moment you give your life to Jesus. The other aspect of what happens in that very moment is not only does God wipe your slate clean for everything that you've done, but your slate is then filled with the perfect, sinless righteousness of Jesus so that for the rest of your life, when God looks at you, that's what he sees. He's credited your account. He looks at you. He loves you. He treats you as though you have lived the life that Jesus lived. So the moment you give your life to Jesus, 
The moment that you come to God the Father with a posture of heart that says, Father, I'm tired of trying to live as my own Savior and Lord. I'm tired of trying to dictate how my life should go, trying to satisfy myself and find my version of salvation through my own efforts. So I'm, I'm coming to you, trusting you that you'll accept me, not on the basis of anything I can do, but on the basis of what Christ has done for me. Scripture says that in that very moment, the sin that was yours is taken from you by Jesus, and the righteousness that was his is given to you by Jesus. And that's just what it means to be united with Jesus in a legal sense. The other aspect of this, I, I touched on a few minutes ago, I won't take as much time on this one, is that you're also united to Jesus relationally. Meaning it's not just this objective thing that in the high court of God's law, you're, you're, you know, you're acquitted and you, 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 know, you just kind of got, got to go through life on your own after that, but, but good news, you're not going to be found guilty at the end. It's so much more than that. Because you're, you're in a very deeply subjective, life-changing way, you're also relationally united with Jesus because Scripture says the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life. So next week, if you're here, that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking all about the Holy Spirit. If that's something that interests you, I think it'll be a good teaching for you. But the Bible teaches that when you become a Christian, you're united with Jesus, not just legally, but relationally, because the Spirit of God enters into your life. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says that we have everything we need to live a godly life because we have been made partakers, listen to this phrase, partakers of the divine nature. Here's how I've heard this explained. This means that the genetic material, spiritually speaking, of God himself enters into your life. And, and so if, if, if your physical life is really nothing more than the outworking of your biological DNA, then, then what the Bible is telling you is that the moment you give your life to Jesus, your spiritual life is the outworking of this new spiritual DNA that becomes a part, an intrinsic part of who you are that Scripture refers to as the Holy Spirit. If, if you think about this in any, any length of time, you, you, you realize that this is at the same time the most convicting and comforting truth imaginable. All right, that's, an, that's a deeply convicting thing because what this means is that you no longer have any excuse once you give your life to Jesus. It means you no longer have any excuse to not walk through what you're walking through in a way that honors God. Uh, you have no excuse to sink into self-pity for the things that have happened to you, to sink into bitterness for the people who have hurt you, to withhold forgiveness from those who have wounded you, uh, to not increasingly be molded into the image of Jesus throughout your life. Because, as Peter says there, uh, you have everything that you need to live a life that honors God. So it's incredibly convicting. But the other side of that is that this is incredibly comforting. Uh, because if I can in invite you to consider this for a moment here, if it's true that God's very nature resides in you when you give your life to Jesus, of the myriad of implications you can draw from that, here's at least what this means. That means that there is no wound in you that cannot be healed. For 10 years now, over 10 years actually, I've been meeting with people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, in kind of a pastoral counseling setting. And um, one of the most unique things about being a pastor that I think is, a, is, is um, it's an incredible honor, but it's also incredibly sobering, is that... Uh, Dozens of times over the last 10 years, people have sat with me, and by their own admission, they've shared things with me that they've never told anyone else. 
And, uh, and dozens and dozens of people have wept as they've done this. I've, I've just listened to people open up about things that would make you cry. Uh, incredibly painful, incredibly painful childhood experiences. Um, sudden death of a loved one. Um, just trauma and pain and loss and uh, abandonment and abuse and neglect and all of it. And underneath all of that, underneath of, of all of that pain and all of that sorrow is a fear that I think every one of us deals with whether or not we're willing to face it. And it's a fear that asks, am I defined by this? Uh, am I doomed to be a product of the things that have happened to me? And, and to walk through life, you know, a shell of the person that I could have otherwise been had I had a more functional childhood or had I been spared, you know, all of these terrible things that have happened to me and, and wounded me. It, the, the question is, am I destined to just walk through life this kind of limping, wounded, broken person? I think anybody who's willing to be honest can admit they've asked themselves that question and maybe even fantasized about a life where you, you were dealt a better hand of cards and so you're just a, a, a healthier person altogether. Am I doomed to be defined by this is the question. And the answer according to Scripture could not be any more clear. The answer is absolutely not. Because the moment you give your life to Jesus, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead enters into your life. And if that spirit raised Jesus to new life, then that same spirit will raise you to new life. That means that there is no wound in you that cannot be healed. There is no brokenness in you that cannot be repaired. There is no burden you're carrying that cannot be lifted. And, and, and so to wrap this first point up, this is, this is really the foundation of the entire teaching. I think it's the most important thing, but we'll cover today, so I wanted to spend the most time on it. Every spiritual blessing becomes yours the moment that you give your life to Jesus. That doesn't mean there's not work to do. And that doesn't mean there's not a whole lot of growth that needs to happen because it's not like we teleport in our sanctification. It's a lifelong process. But every single spiritual blessing is yours, either full-blown or in an embryonic form that's going to work itself out in your life the very moment you give your life to him. That's how you get these blessings. The second question that I wanted to answer that I, I think all of this raises naturally um, is what are these blessings? We've been talking about this multifaceted assortment of blessings. So what are the blessings? What does this package entail? And the truth is, there's no way you could cover all that salvation entails in one teaching. But uh, this passage very obviously shows us three um, in verse, verses 5, 7, and 10. In, um, in verse 5, you have adoption. In verse 7, you have redemption. And then in verse 10, you have consummation. So I just want to spend a few minutes uh, a few minutes, just going over these three blessings. And I think you'll find that even if this was all salvation meant, it would be more than enough. Uh, so first off, I want to look at adoption. In verse 5, it says, He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. A lot of times, you know, the, the, the trick with studying letters that were written to people 2,000 years ago is assuming that we interpret these things the way that people 2,000 years ago would have. And, and I can tell you with, with confidence that when people in, in our culture hear the word adoption, we think about something different than what Paul's talking about here. Because in, in the Roman Empire, in Paul's day, people did not adopt for the same reasons that people adopt today. They didn't adopt purely for the joy of raising a child and investing your life into this little person and, and you know, seeing them be, you know, grow and flourish and all that kind of stuff. It just wasn't a, um, 
It was not a motivator for adoption. In Paul's day in the Roman Empire, you adopted if you needed an heir. So if a man was a lord of an estate and he didn't have offspring, um, he would adopt, usually one of the slaves that worked on his, on his compounds. But, but, but two things to know here that are, that are important, you'll see in just a minute. In, in that day, you almost always adopted an adult. Because if you were later in life and you didn't know when you were going to die, you didn't want to adopt a child and risk your entire estate you know, falling into the hands of a child. But, but secondly and more importantly, in Paul's day, you only ever adopted a male. The Roman Empire was a patriarchal society uh, in which women did not uh, receive the inheritance at all. And so in Paul's day, it was unthinkable for somebody to adopt a female. Literally unheard of. It wouldn't even cross your mind. But that's what makes what Paul is saying here so radical. Because Paul is writing this letter known as Ephesians to a a church like this in Ephesus that obviously was made up of both men and women. And every one of those women being born and raised in the Roman Empire were probably painfully reminded all their life that they had far less value in the eyes of society than a man. And that they would never have even been a candidate, wouldn't have even been considered for adoption. And yet Paul begins this letter by saying, we are adopted by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. And what what he's teaching here uh, is that in Jesus, both men and women, uh, both slave and free, both rich and poor, both Jew and Gentile, are all equally heirs to every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The reason I wanted to touch on this is because it, it grieves me and it bothers me that, that so often you'll hear people try to speak as though Christianity is responsible for things like the subjugation of women and the marginalization of at-risk people groups and that kind of stuff. When, when all that is, I'm not trying to be rude here, that is a historically ignorant take on Christianity. Uh, everywhere Christianity has gone for the last 2,000 years, it has elevated the status of those who were most at-risk in society. And long before something called equal rights ever became trendy, it was Christianity that was laying the groundwork for that. You see that as clear as day all through the New Testament. And and when you talk about adoption, obviously, the moment that you're adopted, which as I said, it was most common for for a, a wealthy estate owner to adopt one of their slaves, the moment that you were adopted from that moment on for the rest of your life, your relationship with you and the one who adopted you was transformed forever. You no longer related to them as a slave to a master or an employee to a boss. You related to them as a child to a parent. And so for Paul to say here uh, that, that we've been adopted by God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, what that means is that in Jesus, your relationship with God has been completely transformed. That there's now a, a security to your relationship with him. You now have newfound access to him. You have new, new life-giving intimacy with him. It completely it changes how you're meant to relate to God. That's just adoption. The second thing that we see here is redemption. You see this in verse 7. It says, we have redemption in Jesus through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, redemption in in the Bible means to actually be be bought out of captivity. Now, adoption's one thing. That's not necessarily an offensive thing to tell people. That's an honoring thing. But, But for Paul to write and say, you've been redeemed, what he's saying is that we're all slaves. And in modern culture, that's a really tough pill to swallow because modern people have a tendency to believe that, that, that you know, the meaning of life is to be free to choose how to live the one life that, that you've been given. And so, you, you know, you walk around telling people that they're slaves 
uh, that's something that needs to be explained and, and, and sort of teased out. So, so let's ask the question, how exactly is it true that, that, that we're slaves? Um, one way you can answer that, and I, I don't think this is moving the goalpost. I think that this is valid if you just follow me here for a second. Um, whether you consider yourself Christian or not, you know, uh, religious or, or secular or anything like that, one of the things that, that every, every one of us has in common is that we're all living for something because the human heart cannot help but look for ultimate meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction and all those things in something. You might not know what that something is for you, and it might change, you know, early and often throughout your life, but the human heart can't help but rest the weight of its life on something that we tell ourselves, if I get that, then I'll know, you know, my life is, is, is meaningful and I'm a valuable person and all that kind of stuff. And, and the point is, whatever that thing is, that functionally is your master. So, so let me walk through some examples of that. If, it, it, this is incredibly common in our culture. If you are a person who lives for love and romance then functionally you're not in control of your life. You are controlled by the people whose love you want. And you'll do anything you need to get their love or to hold on to their love because to you, you don't even know who you are and, and, and your life isn't even worth living should you lose that. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've talked with people over the years who, who in the wake of a breakup have told me that they have, you know, considered ending their life because functionally that person's love was what made their life worth living. And in a very real sense, that's, you're not in control of your life anymore. You know, if, if you live for, um, for, for respect or acceptance or, or, or approval, then, then you're not in control of your life. You're controlled by the people whose opinions matter the most to you. If you live for, for money and power, then you're not in control of your life. You're being controlled by whatever the demands are for you to get more of those things and hold on to those things. The, the, the point is that every one of us is living for something, um, and whatever that thing is, we're mastered by it. So none of us, regardless of what we think, are as free as we think or as in control of our lives as we think. But the problem with all of those masters, because I think in, the, in, in modern culture, a lot of people would hear that and say, well, who cares? It makes them happy, so what's the difference? It gives their life meaning. Why is that even a bad thing? Here's why that's a bad thing. Because what all those masters have in common and all the infinite ones that I didn't have the time to go through on a Sunday morning is that none of those masters gave their lives for you. And what every one of those masters will do is demand you give your lives for them over and over and over and over. And no matter, no matter what they promise, uh, they'll never, they, they're never going to satisfy you. There's never been anybody who's had enough comfort, security, power, acceptance, approval, love, romance. That's just not the human condition. I don't know how many uh, quotes from celebrities I've thrown up here of people who should be the happiest, most satisfied, fulfilled people in the world saying, we've been sold a bag of goods. That just is not... It, the human heart needs more than that. So they, those masters won't satisfy you even if you get them, but maybe, maybe worse, they won't forgive you if you fail them. If you make your career your God and you don't get to the level that you told yourself you needed to get, if you make respect and approval and power and whatever it is and you don't arrive at the ideal life that you planned for yourself, then that master will punish you with feelings of inadequacy and failure for the rest of your life. It will never let you get up from the condemnation of that. Jesus Christ is the one exception to that. Because instead of demanding that you give your life to him over and over and over, Jesus Christ went to the cross and he gave his life for you, what no master's ever done for his slaves. And Jesus is the one master who will not only satisfy you if you get him, but he will forgive you if you fail him. He's got grace upon grace upon grace. He's the one master who died for the redemption of his slaves. That's redemption. 
But thirdly, and, and lastly, the last blessing that, that I want to go through in this, this group here is, is consummation. It's found in verse 10. It says, for the, for the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. The promise that Paul's alluding to here is that one day God is going to set everything right. Um, when he says, he uses the phrase, and I, I like the way this version of the Bible translates it because not every version is clear. When it says to bring everything together in the Messiah, the implied statement there is that at present, uh, everything's fallen apart. And it's been doing that ever since sin entered the world. We were designed for, for a harmonious world, you know, unstained and uncorrupted by the horrible, disintegrating power of sin. That's the world. That's the reality that our hearts have always accidentally longed for. That's a longing there that we did not put there. Uh, but ever since sin entered the world, everything has been falling apart at every level. I mean, if, if you think about what death actually is, it is the falling apart of your physical body. And it's, it's the pulling apart of your body and soul, which is not a natural thing. We're not meant to just get used to that. That's why Jesus Christ himself wept when he saw his friend Lazarus die. That's not supposed to be, it's, it's not the way that it's meant to be. Well, you know, you, you ask yourself, what is war? You know, what is racism? What is injustice? What is poverty? What those things are at bottom is there are things that, that are meant to be brought together that are, that are instead being split apart. And the, the promise here, the hope here, is that God one day is going to fix all of that. He's going to end all that. He's even going to end death itself. And, and when you tell people that, that you know, God's going to end death itself, so there's the hope of your consummation in Jesus, I've heard people say, well, what good does that do me if I still have to die? And I think that's a really honest question. Okay, so if I give my life to Jesus, I have this hope, but I still have to go through death. That's still, I still have to see people around me. That's a terrible thing. So what is the real hope there when you talk about consummation? I think a, a man named George Herbert answered this better than I could. He said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospels made him just a gardener. And what, what he's getting at there is that all that death can do once you are in Jesus is make you far more alive than you ever were during this life. That, that all death does, all it really is, is a doorway that you step through that on the other side uh, enables you to be filled with the light and the glory and the love of God in a way that you never experience more than a fraction of in the greatest moments of your time here on earth. That's the promise for people who put their, their, their trust in Jesus. And C.S. Lewis, who I quote all the time, must have had this idea in mind when he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia because at the, at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan uh, the lion who, who uh, represents Jesus, very obviously represents Jesus, talks about this very thing, and, and I, I love this quote. He says, all their life in this world and all their adventures had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's the hope of consummation. So, so before I, I, I move on from this, I said that this was the stated goal of this teaching. Um, can, I, can I just sit with you here for a moment and, and ask you, I'm, I'm really trying to aim at your imagination here. Uh, you know, the, the, the point of this is to really drive this into your life in more than just an intellectual way. Can I just ask you to consider how life-changing it would be if all of this is, if just these three things are true and you really lived like this was true. If it's true, you talk about, Adoption. If it's true that in Jesus you have been adopted into the family of God, transforming your relationship with God forever, if that is true, then what that means is that you can finally rest 
and you can experience a kind of rest that your soul needs, that you can only find because of Jesus. Uh, so many of us are exhausted because we, we, we move through life, and I, I almost think our culture is built on this. We move through life with this constant need to achieve and to prove ourselves and to justify our existence and to show those around us that we're worth something and that we matter and that we, you know, it, and it's almost like our entire civilization is based on that idea that you are worth something so long as you contribute and you produce and you achieve and you add value and everything's up and to the right. And that is, I don't have to tell you, people are breaking down living that way because it's not how we're meant to live. That's life on a treadmill. And if it's true that in Jesus you were adopted into the family of God, what that means is that you have access to a kind of rest that you're not going to find anywhere else. And, and I say that because children don't have anything to prove to their fathers. You know, slaves have something to prove to their masters. And if they don't, they risk, you know, being abused, being beaten, being killed. Uh, employees have something to prove to their bosses. And if they don't, they're going to be fired and replaced without a, without a moment's notice. But children don't have to prove anything to their fathers. And as I say that, I know that there's a lot of people that are going to hear this message who you did not have a good earthly father. You had an earthly father who sinned against you. And there's probably a number of people who heard this, you don't even know who your earthly father is. But the point is that when you give your life to Jesus, in that moment you have the perfect heavenly father. And he does not put you on probation. He does not put you on trial. He does not save you and then, and then say, now prove that I was right about you and, and, and check up on you. The scripture says that the moment you give your life to Jesus, God the Father loves you infinitely, accepts you infinitely, rejoices over you infinitely, and he will never change his mind about you, which means that you can finally rest. That's your adoption. Now, you think about what it actually means that you're redeemed by Jesus. If, 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 if you think through the implications of redemption, then what it means that you're redeemed by the blood of Jesus is that the gospel offers you, a, you should be a person with a bomb-proof kind of self-image that is completely just, just not dependent whatsoever in what anyone else or even yourself says or thinks about you. The reason I draw that correlation is because if, if, the, if the value, think of it in this terms, if the value of something is determined by the price that someone's willing to pay for it, can I ask you to consider how valuable Scripture says you are that Jesus Christ was willing to purchase you with his own life? Have you ever really thought about what that must mean for how God the Father views you? It's First uh, uh, Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. If that's the price that Jesus was willing to pay to bring you home, the most precious substance in the universe, the lifeblood of the Son of God, if that's the price he was willing to pay, that means that regardless of what other people say or think about you, and regardless of what you say or think about yourself, you are a person of infinite value in the eyes of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. That should, at the same time as that works itself in your life, that will turn you into a person of profound confidence that never turns into arrogance, while at the same time making you a person of profound humility that never becomes insecurity because of the price Jesus was willing to pay for you. The, the third thing, and, and we'll, be done we'll, we'll move on after this, is, is, is consummation. If, if you just think through the, through the implications of the promise of consummation, if, if it's true that Jesus eventually is going to heal you, you know, we, we, we used to sing that song, 
uh, this world is not my home, these burdens aren't my future. If it's true that one day you're not going to have any of the burdens that you have right now, you're not going to have any of the illnesses, you know, physical or spiritual or emotional or mental or any of that that you suffer with in this life. If it's true that one day Jesus Christ will holistically heal you and he will holistically heal this world, that means that, that you're a person whose hope remains intact even if your life gets as difficult as your life can be. It means even if friendships end, even if your marriage ends, even as you watch your health slowly deteriorate, even if you wake up one day to realize my plans for my life and my hopes and my dreams and my ambitions never panned out and there's nothing I can do about it, even if you arrive at that point, you are a person who still has hope. You, you might grieve, but you'll never lose your hope because you're not defined by any of those things. And the life that you're really living for has already been secured for you. It's never gonna be taken away from you and it's just ahead of you. That's your adoption, that's your redemption, that's your consummation. The last question I wanted to answer during our time together is, is, is simply how to know that you have these. I said on the front end of this teaching that it is possible to have these things without knowing that you have them, but I, you know, actually I think the opposite is true as well. Um, you know, if, if, if you're kind of like skeptical about Christianity and, and you're listening to this teaching and you're analytical about it, I think one question that I would have is, okay, if everything I have said so far is true, then why isn't everyone who has not yet given their life to Jesus constantly miserable all the time? If all of these blessings are only available in Jesus, then shouldn't everybody be unhappy until they give their life to Jesus? And, and here's one answer to that question. One answer is, it is, in, it is so entirely possible, and I, I, please don't hear any condescension in this because I think Christians do it just as much as non-Christians. It is so possible to go through your entire life distracting yourself and medicating yourself with cheap substitutes for real joy and real peace and real hope that you don't even realize how much you need these. So the question remains, how do you know if you actually have these? And the one answer, according to this passage, is that the grace of God is glorious to you. In verse 6, Paul says that God did all of this to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. So here's the question. Do you find the grace of God glorious? And when the Bible talks about the concept of glory, glory really has to do with weight. When you find something glorious, it means that it actually has weight in your life. It actually has substance to you. It actually matters to you. So if you drop a bowling ball on a glass coffee table, that, that glass coffee table has no, it has no option other than to shatter and give way in light of the weight and the substance and the glory of that bowling ball. And what Paul's saying here is that's, that's what the grace of God should do in your life. The question is, when we talk about all of these things, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about the grace of God, when we talk about redemption, uh, redemption and adoption and consummation, all this kind of stuff, is that an intellectually fascinating subject for you? Is, is, it, is it like a, an emotional pick-me-up that's you know, an encouraging word on a Sunday morning, then you go about the rest of your life the way that you would have anyway, or has this actually shattered you? Has this actually broken into your life in a way that you say, even if I wanted to be the same, I just can't be who I was anymore? Like Peter, when Jesus asked me, are you all going to leave? And he said, where am I supposed to go? There's just no turning back. A door's been shut behind me. Has that happened to you is the question that nobody else can answer for you. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I found this quote this week. He said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. At the end of the day, that's what this is about. Is God's grace amazing? 
And what I want to do, you've arrived at the end here. All I want to do as we close is just tell you a story of what it looks like when God's grace is as amazing in your life as it's meant to be. Hal Harris was a Welsh preacher about 300 years ago. He was instrumental in the Welsh revival in the 1800s. And there was a specific encounter he had as a teenager that God used to profoundly shape his life. Um, As a 14-year-old boy, he was standing with a number of his other family members around the deathbed of his Aunt Elizabeth. They called her Aunt Lizzie. And, uh, and they gathered around her so that she didn't have to die alone. And uh, she closed her eyes, and the people gathered that day thought that she had died. And so they started talking about her life. And as they did, um, you know, they were reflecting on how difficult her life was because Aunt Lizzie lived a miserable life by anybody's standards. She had lived in poverty, um, She had battled chronic illness her entire life, and she'd outlived at least one of her husbands. And so Hal Harris, this 14-year-old boy, reflecting on the life of his aunt, he said out loud the words, poor Aunt Lizzie. What he did not realize is that his aunt had not died. And she opened her eyes, and she looked at the people gathered around her in the final moments of her life, and she said, who calls me poor? For I am rich. And I will stand before him, bold as a lion. And with those words, she closed her eyes. Her final breath escaped. She went home to be with the Lord. And as you can imagine, Howell Harris could not walk away from that experience without being profoundly changed. The question is, how, how do you get there? How do you explain that? I mean, how, how, how could, could Aunt Lizzie have that much buoyancy and that much courage and that much joy in the face of death, especially after a life as hard as the one that she lived. There's not an ounce of self-pity over the life she lived or fear about the death that she was getting ready to die. How do you explain that? And the answer, according to everything we've talked about this morning, is remarkably simple. It's because she knew what she had. She knew that in Jesus, she had everything. She had every spiritual blessing. That in Jesus, she had already been saved from the one illness that could truly kill her. She knew that in Jesus, she had the one husband who would never die and leave her alone. She knew that in Jesus, she had the one kind of wealth that makes you truly rich. And it was that knowledge that not only changed the way she lived, it changed the way she died. And although she did not get to live to see it, it changed the people closest to her. It changed her nephew's life, which led to thousands of people being welcomed into the family of God. All of that happened because one woman knew what she had. And this passage of Scripture, if that inspires you, if that means anything to you, I just want to end by telling you that this passage of Scripture was written so that you could know the same thing and be transformed by the knowledge of what you have by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I simply ask that we would realize what we have. There's only two kinds of people listening to this, Father. There's people who are united with Jesus and have every spiritual blessing, and there's people who aren't and don't. Wherever the person on the other side of this message is coming from, God, you know that. They know that. That's between you and them. I just ask that salvation would be beautiful to them, and as beautiful as it is, that they would come to know the adoption, the redemption, the consummation, the love, the joy, the peace, the life-transforming power that is theirs by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. Would you make it real to us, Father? 
and help us to live lives that are changed. In the name of your son, we ask these things with nothing but hope, with nothing but hope.